Yeah, it's fine by me. All right. So, um, carrying on then with the uh, the day. I will be giving, uh, for the next 45 minutes, um, some further reflections on kama and rebirth and uh, what that means, what it refers to, uh, how it can be held. And uh, during those 45 minutes, uh, I'd like to um, encourage anybody to, to ask questions. If you have a, a question, you'd like to raise your hand and, uh, <clears throat> or make a comment. Um, after 45 minutes... Uh, Talking about this, depending on the energy, uh, I thought we, we thought we would do a sit, period of sitting meditation, uh, just to develop further tranquility, calmness, let some of the ideas settle, let you think about it, <clears throat> and then for thirty minutes we can do a walking session, so to get out and get a bit more exercise, stretch the legs again after ninety minutes of sitting, and then Ajahn Kurnadama will be talking about. Uh, transcendental right view, which is the, the higher aspect of right view. Uh, and he'll do that for 45 minutes and, and probably also open it up for Q&A during that time. And then a, a, another period of sitting from 3.45 to 4.15, guided by Ajahn Kurnadamu. And then we maybe questions till 5, or we'll see, we'll see how we feel at that time. So, um, there's a a very famous teaching of the Buddha uh, called the Kalama Sutta. Possibly the most famous teaching that he's given in the West, or the most famous teaching in the West that he's given. Um, Excuse me. In the Kalama Sutta, what happens, there's, uh, there's this kind of part of India called the Kesaputta um, in the Kalama country. Uh, and this, this village still exists today. In fact, I was just there uh, about eight months ago. It's called Kesariya, so the name has changed a little bit. <coughs> but in the Buddha's days, it was called Kesaputta. And the Buddha was wandering through this country, and uh, the villagers approached him, and they said, oh, okay, so here's another monk. And uh, they approached him, and they said, look, there's, there's ascetics and Brahmins and wanderers who come through this part of the country all the time, and they're all teaching their own doctrine. And they say that they've got it figured out, and that their way is the right way, and everybody else is wrong. And they're, they're confused about this. They don't know how to hold it because they're all saying something different and they all say that they're right and they all say that everybody else is wrong. And so w- what should they do? And the Buddha gives this, this very special teaching. He says, okay, look, Kalamas. Um, and he gives a list of ten, ten items that you should not take as a basis for faith. And I'm not going to go through all ten because uh, I think I can summarize them in maybe five. And I can't remember all ten. <laughs> That's the other reason. <laughs> uh, 
but I can I certain I can remember the most important ones. Um, so don't go, go by what's in the scriptures. So just because it's in the texts. Um, elsewhere, he says on this note, he says sometimes something that is recorded in the texts is recorded properly. Sometimes it's recorded improper, like inaccurately. So that's in another sutta. But in this case, he says so. Don't go by what's in the suttas or in the texts as a basis for faith. Don't go by what is uh, oral tradition. No, actually, the same one. Don't go by uh, what is um, by the uh, say what is acceptable to your to your peers, like what is socially acceptable. Like everyone else is believing it, therefore I'll believe it. Because sometimes everybody might have a certain conviction, and they could, you know, incredibly enough, they could actually they could all be wrong. Your entire society could be wrong. Okay, so that's another one. Um, do not go by logic. And elsewhere again, he says, sometimes something can be well-reasoned, but it could actually be wrong. Sometimes something could be badly reasoned, but it could actually be correct. So you can't just use reason itself for a basis of faith or as, for, as a foundation for truth. Uh, don't go by the charisma of a teacher. Okay, because, of course, same reason. Sometimes you can have an extremely charismatic teacher and he could be completely deluded. Sometimes you could have a very clumsy, uncharismatic teacher who's actually potentially completely enlightened. You know, this is also possible. Um, don't go by on the basis of preference. So, for instance, I know I've heard this before by a number of people, but it, like one person, actually, Buddhism. I just don't like Buddhism. It's always talking about suffering. And uh, that would be an example of preference. Like, they just, they don't like it. And whereas, you know, if you just talk about heaven, say, oh, I like that. You know, all you have to do is believe and go to heaven, for instance. Um, That would be an example of just preference. Can you think of another important one? Those are maybe the... Yeah, you get the gist of it. So... And then he says, well, so what should we, what should we go on? And he says, um, oh, there's another one I know, and this was one translation. There's many translations of some of these points. But one is, uh, actually, this might be the same one as the charisma of a teacher. There's another one, it's the power of a teacher, or also sometimes that's translated as psychic power of a teacher. And again, that's the same principle. It's entirely possible that somebody might have psychic powers, which, is, which comes from power of mind and concentration, but it might not point to anything, to any kind of wisdom that transcends this world. Uh, the, the ability to heal, to, to um, read minds, rare as they are, they do exist in my, my understanding. And, and, uh, and, uh, but it doesn't, it doesn't point to freedom from delusion. It may, it may not. Um, but then he says, he goes on to say, but when you know for yourself, uh, when you know through your own experience that something is wholesome, is beneficial, is praised by those you perceive to be wise, praised by the wise, then you should follow it. When something is, when you know for yourself through your own experience that something is unwholesome, it leads to your own suffering or to the suffering of others, um, it's discouraged from, from, uh, by the wise, then you should not do that action. Uh, 
And there's more to that sutta. It's a, it's a lovely sutta, and I'll, I think I'll stop there because it's. Uh, I may come back to it later. And so this is sometimes I think. Oh, another one is uh, authority. So just because somebody, just uh, on the basis of authority, uh, to take that as a basis for faith. Um, that's not. That's not something you should take as a basis for faith. So now, as this has come to the West. Uh, because this really is a remarkable discourse, and I don't know if I've ever seen anything quite like it, certainly in Western uh, religions. Um, it's really been picked up on by Western Buddhists or people who are kind of new to Buddhism. And they say, see, even the Buddha himself says, don't believe somebody just because they're an authority, including the Buddha. And that's true. And in this discourse, that's exactly what he says. And then they go proceed to basically trash or dismiss everything else the Buddha said uh, in the context of his teachings. So how do you reconcile this? Like, what, How are we supposed to hold this? And I think an important point I'd like to make, for those of you who maybe are familiar with this argument and this, this teaching, this discourse, uh, the Buddha doesn't say just because something is in the texts or is oral tradition, or something is taught by a teacher, therefore you should discard it. He's just saying you shouldn't take it as a foundation for truth. It shouldn't be just like a one-to-one relationship, like it's in the suttas, therefore it's true. You know? it may, it's in the suttas, and therefore it might be true, it might not be true, but maybe there's a lot in here which is absolutely true. Maybe it's all true, right? Or maybe any t- that text is like that. Uh, my te- one of my teachers in Thailand uh, just gives a, the lovely simile of a map. It's like if you're given a map, uh, like this is kind of the analogy here, you shouldn't just assume that the map is absolutely correct. Okay? You just don't say, right, this map is true, and that's the end of the story. But you might want to kind of start just walking a little bit and kind of exploring the map. And you might recognize as you walk along the map, and then you say, you know, the map might say, okay, walk, you know, 100 kilometers to the north, 100 meters to the north, and on the right you'll see a pond. And you might do that, and then on the right you might see a pond. You say, right, okay, that worked. And then it might say, uh, walk further 50 feet down, and then on the left you'll see a tree. And you do that, and you see the tree. And basically in time you start to look at this map, and you say, right, you know what, this map is, is reliable. It's a reliable map. So when the Buddha taught this discourse, he was teaching it to people who had no exposure to the Buddha's teachings. They were very confused. They didn't know what was right, what was wrong. So the Buddha is like he's giving some basic principles that respects your own wisdom. Very important principle in Buddhism. You've got to respect your own, your own wisdom and your own doubts because it's through your own doubt and your own wisdom that you, you're going to learn. So that, that's a fundamental part of the teachings. Does anybody have any comments or questions on that so far? Okay, maybe... Mm-hmm. 
Yes, this is this is true. I mean, this is uh, the in the uh, in the commentaries to the suttas. They say that the people in this in this uh, part of the country were actually quite developed and wise. And I think that's relevant because actually, say, what is wholesome? What is for your benefit? This is not immediately obvious. Um, so, for example, the Buddha says later later on in the sutta, he says, "What do you think, Kalamas?" When greed arises in a person, is it for their benefit or for their harm? And they go, that's for their harm. But I think a lot of people might say, especially say in a capitalist society, no, greed is for their benefit. <laughs> you know, a lot of people think that greed is what makes the, makes the world go around. So that's a sign of their own, their own uh, sophistication that they could recognize that greed is actually for their, har- their own harm. Um, but I think that's something that most people here could probably recognize, that greed is something that creates a d- sort of darkness in the heart, and that selfishness does create a kind of contraction of, of the spirit, as it were, the contraction of, the, of your consciousness. Whereas like a generosity and openness creates a, a much more kind of expansive state of consciousness. So that's, uh, that's, a, that's true. Um, uh, but I think this teaching is particularly relevant for Westerners because it, it does respect a person's wisdom. And it's, it's basically not coming along just saying, look, okay, here's what you have to believe. You know, it's saying that, okay, here's a teaching and this is for you to reflect on. And if this makes sense to you, then it's something that you should give yourself to. Not because I'm the authority and I know and you don't and you never will and I always will, but because... Frankly, this really is for your benefit. You know? Like, I really do know what I'm talking about. And because I know, I'm not just going to try and force it on anybody. It's just I'll sit here, and if anybody wants to ask, I'm, I'm happy to... I'm not speaking about me here, by the way. <laughs> but I'm happy to, to share what I, what I know. And that's the way I understand the Buddha's approach to all of his teachings are. Yes? Right. So I'm beginning to have, I'm having doubts about my ability to know for myself. And based on your recent example about capitalistic greed, yes, uh, I always felt there's, I always had what I felt was sort of this inner voice that told me what the right thing to do was, based on just this kind of inner intuition, inner knowingness. Yeah. So this inner knowingness in 2005 said, buy property. Okay. okay. So I've been a renter all my life. You know, I was thinking about retirement. Okay, so, you know, my sister says, get into real estate. Uh, but I had this inner, th- inner process inside saying, okay, take care of yourself for the future. Property values are always going to go up. <laughs> I bought three properties in 2005. Oh. And it was all from a place of Yes, this is, you know, I'm buying this, I'm refinancing one to buy two more. You know, this is like, yes, this is all felt right. Okay. okay so you know what, so I think, you know what happened. Yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry for laughing. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I'm loving the simplicity of my life, which is back to being a renter and, and letting go of all that. And I really like that, but I just really question. So uh, in retrospect, yeah. it was... Greed, yeah. But at the at the time, it was 
an inner knowingness that I felt this is right. So now I'm questioning my ability to gauge. Very good. Very well put. Um, okay, let me see. How can I respond to that? Right. So by when you know for yourself that something is wholesome or unwholesome is not the same as when you have a really strong hunch that something is good is going to make a profit. Um, this is more... I mean, there's a refinement. I mean, everybody... I, I can't give you, a, I think, a perfect answer for this. Everybody is going to have to take this and work out the, the implications for their own lives on an individual basis. And... My sense is that this is referring to basic principles of generosity, morality, um, and the, one of the things about the law of... Okay, there's many different things I'd like to touch on here. One of the things about the law of kama is it's not, uh, it's not an economic deal, okay? And it's, sometimes this is the way it's perceived. It's like, okay, I'll do something good, and then in the future I'll get something back. Now, even though it, it is kind of like that in the sense that you plant a, a, one kind of seed, you get that kind of result from that, but how it's going to happen, we simply never know. That is actually beyond our ability to see. So this question comes up, fair enough. Uh, okay, why is it? I've been a Buddhist my whole life. I've been keeping the precepts. I've been putting food in monks or nuns' bowls ever since I was a young child. And I'm 40 now, I've just been diagnosed with cancer, and I'm miserable, I've lost my home. What's going on? You know, I thought that Kama was supposed to have good results. <clears throat> and uh, sometimes that happens. And all you can say to that is, again, samsara is vast. And we're dealing with uh, the law of cause and effect does not stretch just within the span of one lifetime. So if you think of it in terms of having tens, hundreds, thousands of lifetimes in the past and deeds that are being done, we have no idea when or how they're going to ripen. So all you can do in a situation like this, now this is a slightly more sophisticated kind of understanding of kama, is to learn to have trust in good intention. Uh, the Buddha says, actually elsewhere he says, what is kama? Intention is kama. Intention is kama. So what we have to learn to develop is <clears throat> whenever there is an impulse towards something goodness, a spontaneous desire to do something good and kind, to learn how to start to trust that and to act on it. For myself, and I imagine this is common for many people, you have often enough, you have a you know, really kind of kind impulse arise in you, but then you start thinking about the implications <laughs> and you say, hmm, no, actually, uh, maybe I won't do that. But what, what you want to do is, is when you start trusting, say, for example, if I do something good, I have no idea how that goodness might pan out. I may not see the results of it. Let's say I, I say a good, something kind, then it may, just, it may touch that person's heart. That person may not even be aware of it. And he may go home or she may go home and then suddenly say something really kind to his or her wife or husband or children based on what I said, and then there may not be a conscious, by any means, a conscious connection of the dots. 
But basically, the cause of that may have come from a good intention that I've brought forth into being. And that is how goodness comes into the world and flourishes in the world, is basically people have to trust their good intentions. Um, when, you, if, when you start thinking about kama, and if you think you're going to understand how it's going to pan out, and so you do X so that you'll get Y in return, again, that's better than thinking, I'll just take what, what's, what I want and not care about anybody else. But that's still the kind of exchange idea, and that's not what kama is all about. So when I think of uh, learning to, say, when you see in yourself what is wholesome, it's, it's not so much a sense of what, what you should do or not do based on what you want from the world, say, profit, <clears throat> but it's a sense like, okay, what action is bright? And this is where you develop a, a sort of a refined, <clears throat> excuse me, a sensitivity for what is the nature of wholesomeness. Uh, wholesomeness, it has a quality of brightness to it, of peace, of, of kind of openness, spacious, it's bright. It's, it's beautiful. And when that impulse arises, you want to learn to trust that and act on it. And um, so that's different, say, from just the intuition <clears throat> that says, you know, I think I'll invest in this stock rather than that one because I really think that this stock is going to work. That is probably an intuition based on experience and, and past experience, which may be right, may be wrong. Um, but it's not really a moral sensitivity. Is that kind of approach to responding to your question? Ajahn Kurundamo would like to say something. Please, please. Just also um, to mention that in that same sutta, the Buddha, the, the part that Ajahn Yataka hasn't gotten to at this point, was he, he actually starts to delineate what some of those things are that people do that cause harm to themselves and cause harm to others. And say, you know, basically it follows the lines of, of the wholesome courses of action. And he actually, in some places, does get fairly specific as to what results in wholesome states of mind. Uh, you know, along the lines of following precepts, refraining from uh, harming, and, you know, the, like the ten wholesome courses of action, uh, along the lines of right action, right speech, <coughs> and, and the attitudes of mind that lead to your own long-term benefit, not just a short-term benefit. So he's not, he is saying, you know, find out for yourself, experience for yourself, but he's not saying just follow your intuitions because sometimes our intuitions are, are misguided. Sometimes our intuitions are along the lines of our learned habits of how we think we're going to get happiness, like through some sort of material stability or material gain. But he also does uh, offer some very specific guidelines about what kinds of actions in body, speech, and mind are actually going to result in a, a longer, more stable uh, kind of happiness that's, that's beyond just where, our, where we you know, have some sort of intuition. Because sometimes our intuitions, as, as Ajahn Yataka was earlier saying, sometimes our intuitions aren't based on a real pure intention. I just right, right. That's good. Yes? So it sounds like intention is the, is the actually the way into understanding all morality, would you say? Yes. Uh, the question was, so is intention the way into understanding all morality? <coughs> right action and wholesome action? Intention is the key factor. 
in, in any action in terms of its moral efficacy or in terms of its karmic result. Intention is the key. Um, <clears throat> it's not the only, but it's, it's, it's the, the key. It's the most important factor so by far. Is it a matter of thinking what your intention is or sitting and quieting and trying to feel your intention? How do you determine this? Well, so the intention is to, uh, to refrain from harming other beings. So this is where it does actually involve the external world. But the intention is to refrain from harming other beings and to, to contribute to other beings' health, happiness and welfare. You mean the basic good intention? Yeah, the basic good intention. Basic bad intention is just the reverse. So we have in Buddhism, there's the three primary roots of what is unwholesome. That's greed, hatred, and delusion. These kind of the very fundamental things that produce suffering in the world. Delusion is the most blameful of the three. Um, and then the three wholesome roots are just the opposite. So non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. And all wholesome intentions arise from non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. But that's passive. How do you put it in a, on an active way? So you basically you act on it. So you have, say, a desire. You see somebody and you want to help that person. So the, the intention is to help that person, and then you act on that intention. And that's the karma is made through either body, through speech, or through mind. So there's three sort of doors where we, we act on intention. So basic kindness to another person, say. Kindness to another person, yes. That's, that's, uh, so like, say, kind actions, that's one way of expressing it. Kind speech, speaking kindly. And also kind thoughts. So you kind of, if you think, you try and develop kind of wholesome thoughts. Um, those are the three sort of doors of action in Buddhism. And intention gets manifest in all three of those spheres. So that you actually could go um, through your life mm-hmm. uh, trying to be aware or actually not only just think what's my intention here, but actually to, have to get in front of that and say, now I'm going to have this intention, and then whatever comes up, you just try to make it fit into that intention? We just try and act as purely as possible, as sincerely as possible. So, um, right, so you're just sensitive to a situation, you open yourself up to a situation, and you try and it's, uh, it's, it's a movement of, I guess it's kind of hard to explain, it's a movement of kindness. You want to be kind, you want to help, you want to serve, you want to make something more beneficial. This is an, a wholesome karma. It's a kind of nurturing, reason. Nurturing, sure. There's many different adjectives you can come up with. And it's actually very hard to pin down in words, I suppose. Um, perhaps it's something you have to feel out. It's like, what is it to, to give, to help, to serve, to, to make things grow, to make things better, to improve, to make beings happy. The one thing about this kind of karma, though, when you act, uh, there's a result. And generally what happens when you act on intention, you wind up... Um, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but uh, maybe, I should, maybe I should just stop there.
So. Yes. Um, being relatively new to the practice, yes. I mean, I've been practicing for about 17 years, but a different, not the capacity. Yeah. Um, but it just seems like if you've been so steeped in greed, hatred, and delusion for so long, then how do you change that in such a profound way to make a difference? I mean, do you know what I mean? It's like it seems like such a heavy switch to switch to what you're talking about? Well, it's, it's not. First off, you can't force yourself to believe something when, you're not, when you don't believe it. So I'm not saying, like, say, with rebirth, for instance. It's so foreign to many of us. And you just can't force yourself to believe something if, it just, if, if it's so alien to you. But what you can do is you can expose yourself to it. And in time, you might come to realize that the reason... <laughs> The reason we're resistant to this idea sometimes is because it's just we've never it's just new to us. Uh, it's to be frank. Like sometimes people think, "Oh, rebirth—that's so absurd." It, it makes so much more sense, actually, to to me now that I've thought about it and kind of spent some time, than like an all-powerful God who might send beings to one direction or the other. No, I understand that one. So the point is, though, like that—that's sometimes easy to accept for many people, just because we're familiar with it. Uh-huh. Whereas rebirth is difficult to accept because we're not familiar with it. Yeah, no, that one I understand. I understand rebirth. Oh, I see. But, I don't un- but I'm just saying that like the whole, to get out of the greed, delusion, and stupidity, or greed, anger, and st- whatever they are, yeah. after you've been steeped in them for your, most of your life, it just seems like it's a very difficult switch to turn, and I'm wondering how you start even. I mean, even, you know, and I've been practicing for a bit, but... yeah. But I still, and I listened to the things that she was saying also, I mean, they really touched, they were so true, and yet it's so hard to make those changes. So. It is. This is true. <laughs> yeah, and I don't have an easy answer. Uh, <clears throat> there's, uh, like, a, one certain answer is simply confidence in the path. So, okay, there is a path. There is a destination. Sometimes destination is like, People like to think, well, there's no destination. But, but actually there is. There's a goal. And, and moment by moment, we are creating karma. And we have to become confident in that. And then just do our best and kind of proceed with that information. And the path is, it's like a flower. It's an unfolding. And we have to be very patient, much more patient than we probably expected at first. So many of us, we start meditating. We think we'll be enlightened in a few years. Then we'll start teaching. It'll be great, right? I mean, that's often enough. That's what we thought. At least that's what I thought, and I think many of us did. And we no longer think that. <laughs> um, but we. But it's almost like what becomes more and more. It, it almost makes the whole thing more beautiful because it becomes it's it's real. You realize how. Um, how, how most of us are living on a very superficial plane of perceptions and, and uh, ideas. And you start to appreciate how, how deep the spiritual path has to go and has to be and the kind of commitment it takes and patience it takes. And that's what makes it valuable. If it was easy, it, it wouldn't be so valuable. So it's not the case. Sometimes med- they say meditation or enlightenment is easy. Enlightenment isn't easy. 
at least they'll come it, there comes a point when it's easy but for many of us we're not it's a long way away yet when it will be easy and what we have to do just the five precepts i mean how hard is, that's hard for most people and that's and that's fair enough i mean it's the five precepts to refrain from killing stealing sexual misconduct lying drugs and alcohol and that's a very basic foundation for the for the spiritual life just that much is is a challenge and that's fair enough you know i'm not putting that down and um so we have to we have to really be prepared to to be patient to be generous with ourselves what does that mean to be generous with ourselves it means to give ourselves time you know to give ourselves time and it's a funny paradox because in one sense it's an extremely urgent matter we have to have a sense that life is short it's valuable we have to get on with what's important then at the same time we have to realize okay you know it's a long journey it's a long journey and it's going to take commitment but you know as they say with you know motivational speakers say things like this all the time you have to take one step at a time you start with one step and then you take the next step and then you take the next step and and uh it's it's uh it's a, it's i think it's a very beautiful path but it's beautiful be- partly because it's challenging and it's real so I hope that doesn't sound depressing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so I've talked a lot about rebirth, and uh, I, I just also want to add that it's it's still true. So let's say somebody is listening to this and they're thinking, you know. This all sounds fine and everything, but I just can't believe in rebirth. That's just, it's just beyond me to even take that seriously. And so this is where the Kalama Sutta would come in. It's like, you don't have to believe this. And it's not like imperative to believe this. Rebirth is a skillful paradigm that as long as you don't know, the Buddha says, this is a skillful way to hold your existence. But if you can't, then simply, if you have to put your refuge in anything, then just put it in, some, in what you trust to be wholesome. Uh, and if you do that, then at least you can't go wrong. I, I give us, uh, I don't know if this is a very good analogy or not, but it's kind of like this. Let's say you want to get to the North Pole, and all kinds of people have these different maps. You know, you go there, you go up and down, and then you turn left, and there's highway that, and you go here. And then the, somebody comes along and say, yeah, well, you know, I also have a map, and it, it does work. And if you want to take it and, and follow it, you'll, you'll see that it works. But if you're just looking for a basic principle to trust in, I'll give you two. Just keep moving and don't go south. <laughs> and just stick, stick to that and you'll get there. Just stick to that and you'll get there. That's kind of like the Kalama Sutta. Like, okay, the Buddha does have a path and a paradigm that's skillful, wholesome, and that's the quickest way to get to the destination. But if, if all of it just seems so kind of like there's just stuff there you can't accept, that's okay. Um, so stick to what is wholesome. No, let me rephrase this. Stick to what is wholesome and then to meditation and to investigation. So what we call sila samadhi panya. Um, as, a, as a basis, so, uh, you know, virtue, 
ground yourself in virtue. That's the first stage. Meditation. It's through meditation that you learn to refine the mind so that you can contemplate. And then the third factor is investigation or study. Not study intellectual study, but study, investigate life, investigate the body, investigate death, investigate birth, um, investigation. And that's what leads you to, 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 to an ultimate goal where you transcend kama. Because even good kama, and this is what I, was, I refrained from saying earlier, um, if you do something good, good kama, you're kind of on safe ground because the result of that is going to be pleasant. But the result of that is still existence. And you're never really, as long as you're in conditioned reality, there's always going to be a sense of lack, a sense of this, this isn't secure, because it's never secure, because it's always going to end. And there is one level of security through doing good deeds, and that's going to ripen in heavenly-type existences, either metaphorically or actually. Um, but this is where there's this constant sense of thirst that is always accompanied with conditioned existence. There's always a sense of lack. Even with the most blissful realities that we might have, there's always, there's always a danger accompanied by the fact that there's nothing in us that is eternally good. There's good intentions, but there's also bad intentions. And that's, that's a reality of, of existence. Um, there's only one way to be free of, to be utterly and infinitely and totally free of unwholesome intention, is to be free from intention. And that's where meditation comes in and ultimately insight comes in. Uh, is the, the cessation of kama is the ultimate is the ultimate liberation that we were pursuing in Buddhism, and that's where that's kind of heading towards what we call super mundane right view. So far up to now, we're just talking about how to live within samsara, how to live you might say safely, how to have a foundation for deeper investigation and for deeper insight into this completely transient realm that we're living in that we just magically appear it seems and we're going to disappear very quickly and that's not the end of it uh what's there's going to be continuity of existence which is always conditioned by our actions and you can never it's always work to do something good and it should be done as long as we're in samsara but you have to recognize even the limitations of that So, uh, again, any questions on that at all? Might have been a bit of a left curve there, seems to me. Yes? Um, when you say it's always work to do good, Yes. are you speaking to choosing wholesome thoughts or choosing a wholesome path? Or is that, it's not reflective of right or wrong, right? Or is it? Uh, yeah, what I think... When I say it's always work to do good, that means it's always, I don't mean tremendous amount of work, but it's always, uh, whenever there's the possibility of doing good, 
<clears throat> there's always, at the same time, the possibility of doing bad. That is the nature of goodness. Or by goodness, again, wholesome, awesome. beneficial. And so <clears throat> that moral dilemma that we're, we face between choosing good versus choosing bad, or again, those are really yeah. bad words. Yeah. <laughs> um, but between choosing that which is really beneficial and choosing that which is unbeneficial, there's always going to be the, the potential for struggle within oneself. And that's always a kind of struggle. And in the early days of one's practice, when one is, say, just, it seems like one is just new to this whole spiritual thing, um, it, it's a great battle. I mean, you may be stuck in some what seems like, you know, say, really serious addictions and, and a battle between whatever, maybe power and, and doing something good in the world. That can be a real battle. In time, there starts to become a, a real greater and greater sense of trust in the power and the value of what is wholesome. But equally so, in time, one increasingly is, finds oneself, if one is pursuing a path of what is wholesome, one finds oneself increasingly in pleasant circumstances. And I'm talking in the long term here. And what that means is one is forever more prone to being attached to one's experience. So let me, t- just you can take this on a mythical level if you like, but suppose after living a very wholesome life, maybe you've really refined consciousness, very wholesome, you get born in the heaven realm, and it's blissful. And it's so, what happens is the result of that is it's very tempting to, to attach to that. Say, oh, may this never end, right? And as soon as you start doing that, that's the seed for what is unwholesome. And that's why samsara is just this kind of endless, you know, you're just going up and down and up and down. And, and, and when you start sort of grasping, you know, wait a minute, even, even heaven, even bliss, and he, you know, it's, it's never eternal, and at the end of the day, you realize, you know, the safest course, the most comforting relief would be just to renounce all this. And not because out of any kind of aversion, but a sense of, you know, it's futile. You're, on a, you're forever on a sinking ship, if you will, and you're, just, uh, you're forever creating castles that are just eternally crumbling. Um, what's that myth of Sisyphus? Like you're just forever pushing this rock up a hill and then it rolls down again. And you push it up and it rolls down. And you start realizing, wait a minute, uh, maybe it's just more peaceful to just, just be. And, uh, and fundamentally, to this is where we start recognizing the flaw in craving. And it's like, okay, you know what my, my purpose in life is? Is actually to be free of craving. But before you be free of craving, you should be grounded in mundane right view. Because if you don't have this foundation in uh, in uh, uh, appreciation for the law of kama, and you start letting go of desire, well, you can that can get you in all kinds of trouble. You know, well, I'll just kind of hang out, and it basically winds up being like a kind of just screw this, you know, world sort of thing, and um, and that's not what the Buddha is talking about. Well, that would just be more like laziness is what I'm talking about. Slacker. What's that? Slacker. Something like a slacker. Although sometimes there can be wisdom in slacker uh, attitude as well. But it's like, yeah, when you just say, you know, I'm not going to try, but really secretly you're still attached to the results. 
like a lot of people, I think, who sometimes just don't, they kind of say, look, I'm just going to be content with kind of nothing. They're not recognizing how much even just nothing in this society is based on the poverty that's in other parts of the world. You know, it's very interconnected. So, um, can I ask you something? Please. Isn't there something to be said, though, for all, I mean, the striving to, to create things that are appreciated and, like, to have a career and, and strive to do something well, even if it is out of craving, you're still creating something incredible, right? Totally. So and then, So that's what I say the law and comma has to be the foundation. So respect for the love of what the, the value that can come out of commitment and good deeds in the world. Mm-hmm. Totally. I mean, culture. I mean, how much beauty has come out of that? Mm-hmm. But still, all that is a relative goodness. And relative to somebody who, let's say you haven't recognized the, the danger, the limitations of culture. And there are limitations. Now, if you don't quite see it clearly then by all means, stick with good actions in the world. You know? And, and it, you know, it can be very f- fulfilling on one level, but it's also going to be limited. There's going to be a part of the heart which culture won't reach, and refinement won't reach, and wealth won't reach. Can you do the both at the same time? The both at the same time? Uh, no. <laughs> no, you can't. Um, that's sort of like saying, can you just throw... Yes, you can do that. Uh, what I mean is you can't be, on the one hand, uh, completely enlightened, and then at the same time be pursuing, be cultivating craving, even refined craving in the world. So that, that's not possible. But what is possible is, say, to be working in the world, to have a family, to be caring for your children, to be creating all kinds of good karma, to be serving your community, and then at the same time be learning about the path, be developing understanding and insight, be developing tranquility, and, and you can certainly make all kinds of progress on that level. But in terms of, there is a point where it's like you have to rec- there's a recognition that the heart, there's a suffering in the heart. There's an incompleteness. There's a thirst that will never be fulfilled, even through family, okay, through any conditioned experience. There's something that cannot be accessed. There's something that cannot be an ultimate satisfaction to the heart. So, so it's almost like for each person, for each being, we're born into this world and we alone, and, and we die alone. And that's, that's an existential truth. And after we die, we carry on according to our actions. So while we're in the world, yes, it's, please don't misunderstand me, um, it's very important to be responsible with your career and your family. And you can cultivate many parts of the Eightfold Path. But there's parts which is very difficult to cultivate uh, while you have a family and you're, you have a career and you're exposed to advertising, and you are part of 
perhaps a very deluded culture, if I may say so. So that's maybe strong, but I'd like to share that. Yes? Actually, um, the, on the delusion, I wanted to ask about that, um, sort of the definition. And also, is that where you think you're doing something wholesome and for your long-term benefit, but it's really not, and it's more of a short-term and also, how do you, um, is it through meditation and following the path that you become not deluded? Yes, basically. Um, there's many different kinds of delusion. Uh, so one aspect of delusion is where you take something to be permanent that's actually impermanent. By, perm- by taking it to be permanent doesn't mean you actually theoretically believe it to be permanent but rather you're treating it as though it were a permanent object. You're relating to it as though this is going to last forever, when actually it's not. So that's one aspect of delusion. Or you take something to be happiness that's not happiness. So you think something is going to be fulfilling and rewarding and happy, but actually it's not. And you pursue something and it it leads to suffering. Um... And then the one which is slightly difficult to communicate is you take something to be self, but it's actually not self. Uh, The prime example is this body. You know, you take this body, you think this body is me, belongs to me. Actually, it's not. Belongs to the world, to nature. It's not ours. Never was. And, and based on those three delusions, you get a whole kind of configuration and, you know, a labyrinth of different deluded actions and, and uh, so forth. Yes? I just want to share something rather than a question. Yes. Relating to what, I don't know your name, but just simple example that I was going through with the meal, the lunch here. Last time I was here, it was similar situation. It was same buffet lunch and I saw the food and I immediately felt this overwhelming wholesome feeling that it was unbearable and I actually simply could not eat the food and I was just constantly crying and it was wholesome feeling I just knew the wholesome feel I, I really felt like I understood the wholesome feeling and um, and I just didn't eat much I ate like few grains and that was it. And today, I saw the same kind of humility and appreciation, but I ate a lot. The same wholesome feeling, but my actions are different because, and it kind of relates to, you know, like you can have a lot sometimes, it's okay if you're that. And I kind of learned it from the simple thing. So, you know. I, I, I just felt like I, it's beautiful food that's given to me, and I'm going to eat and do something great. Right. And I even took a muffin for my child, and I didn't even feel guilty. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I just wanted to share. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I've got a lot of questions, actually, but I'll keep this simple. <laughs> I, I'm one of those um, who uh, is definitely, uh, I'm an agnostic. I'm one of those that... Um, I neither believe in rebirth or not believe in it. Mm. Same with God, same with pretty much everything like that. Um, Because I have no foundation for it. I have no experience of it. Um, There's no no evidence for it. 
and um, the attraction of Buddhism for me is are the teachings and the um, and the and the uh, and the path. Mm. Um, and you've actually shocked me quite a bit with a lot of the, the stuff about karma and stuff because it's it's not why I'm in this. Right. Um, I mean, one of the foundations for me is is that um, the wisdom of the insecurity that, uh, that Buddhism provides one. Uh, so you know, so and and it seems to me that uh, the more I look at Buddhism, there's sort of Buddhism, and then there's Buddhism. Even Buddhists don't agree, in, you know, with what Buddhism is. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we're hearing here today is sort of one one Buddhism. Um, what I'd like to know, and, and also we talked about the, the metaphysics of it. I think you said it's not a metaphysical thing. Mm-hmm. Maybe two questions. One is, where does this karma uh, and the merit exist when it's going from one life to another, in your purview? And um, where do you get your confidence that this this actually exists? Like, mm-hmm. like you say, most of us are confused, but there are people out there who know. Mm-hmm. Well, how do we know they know? Mm-hmm. And uh, and how do they know they know? I mean, perhaps <laughs> they just say they know, or perhaps they think they know, but how right. do we know they know? Right. So could, I wonder if you could address. <laughs> okay, I'll just say a few words on this. It's uh, so maybe I'll just go for like till two, and then just cut it. Okay, I don't know. They know. I mean, that's that's the simple answer. Okay. And the thing is, if you are, if your faith is in rationality. Well, it's faith. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's another. That's a, a charged word. Yeah. Okay, because I, I think I think when you take reason to be the source if everything comes down to what is reasonable then I think there is a, a level of certainty that reality you can never achieve right. in anything and when it comes down to the, say the Buddha's, the Buddha's words for instance if you want to be sure before you kind of take it on I want to know this is the Buddha's words you, you'll never know right. I, before I believe in Kama I want proof no, I'm not going to. Even if I could give it to you, it wouldn't be wise for me to do so. Now, I will say, I, in my own experience, I have. So I've okay. So having been a monk for 20 years, I've met many, many teachers in Thailand, monks who themselves have been monks for 30, 40 years, spend most of that time in a forest meditating. Share with me how, for instance, how to advice on. I'll just, for example, okay? Sure. If you have uh, something called like a nimitta, an image of a past life or an, another being, how to distinguish whether or not it's your own projection or it's actually, say something for real. Now, have I ever had any kind of experience like that? Mm, okay. Fair, Fair enough. Not, not really. Not, not, not to say, not, no. But when they're, they're speaking like this, they actually are speaking in such a way that for me, these are beings who are extraordinarily virtuous. Like, that for me, I, there's no question that they're not lying. Mm, okay. that, now it's just for me. That's my faith. I've known them. I've seen them. I've seen their conduct. Mm. I've studied them. I don't think they're making this up. Right. Secondly, are, are they completely deluded? Mm, I don't think so. Sure. Maybe they are. Thirdly, if I believe in it, is, a, is it harmful to me? Is their worldview harmful to me? No. I feel quite confident in that. 
fourthly, and perhaps most importantly, I'm also somewhat of an agnostic. And for, it took me many years to even approach this subject. Mm. But, so fourthly, it's like, do I really care that much? Right, well, that's my thing. No. Yeah, do I, I really care? Yeah. I don't. I don't really care. Okay. And so in terms of my... But it's almost like a, I think it's a suitable framework that I think is, as Buddhism has come to the West, there's a lot of people, like you said, okay, your Buddhism is just one more brand, brand of Buddhism. There's something like that. Something like that. Okay. So let's just back up a little bit and go back 150 years or 200 years. The West has never even heard of Buddha for the most part. Hardly even existed. You had some geniuses like Schopenhauer, you know, one of the first people to really kind of recognize and study the difference between rebirth and, and reincarnation, an incredible being, yeah. and talk about it. And then he spawned one of his disciples, named George Grimm, a German, maybe 120, 130 years ago, who wrote one of the first real books on Buddhism, mm-hmm. as far as I know, in, in, in German, which has been translated into English. Through his influence, there were some very important German monks that went to, or at the time, they were German people who went to Sri Lanka, became monks, yeah. Nyanaponika, uh, Nyanatiloka, Nyanamoli, uh, Nyanawira, um, some of these the kind of great founders in, in Western Buddhism. Uh, you had uh, some incredible beings that just like uh, Rise Davids, he's like a layperson who translated a lot of the texts from Pali into English. You had I.B. Horner. If anybody knows who that is, she's done a lot of translation around uh, the, the suttas, which, incredibly enough, for those of you who know Ajahn Amaro, it's his aunt. Mm-hmm. Yes, he's a great aunt, sorry. Like, and she was just like a lady who just kind of in England in the 1920s or something, kind of translating all these texts, and he said, you know, none of us knew what she was doing. She was just doing her own thing. Turns out she's like this kind of great, you know, historical translate. So as Buddhism has come to the West, slowly, most, for the most part, it's come through books at first. Mm. And then there's been a few, uh, and then there came some seminal teachers, uh, Zen and Tibetan teachers. Right. But for the most part, it's come in through books. Yes. And certain teachers, Alan Watts is one of them, yes. who has taken a lot of his stuff through, he's a very much an intellectual. Yeah, he wrote The Wisdom of Insecurity, which is what I was talking about. Beautiful title. Yeah. But again, we spoke, I heard he speaking about some of his faults. You know, he died of... Yes, he was an alcoholic. Very serious alcoholic. <laughs> he died choking on his vomit, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty bad. Um, has children all over the world. Um, and... So this is a very good... Ex- so, I'm not holding him up as a... I know you're not. I, I know you're not. But I think what I, my point is that... Now, this is a very delicate thing, and it's very difficult for a monk to communicate this because um, I don't know how to say it. Like, I'm trying to communicate that... that uh, and this may be a sensitive issue, and I, I, I kind of I hope I'm not you know, putting my foot in my mouth here... But as a monastic, it's like there, there's generally a sense that committing 20, 30 years to meditation and to study, that there's a perspective and, uh, say, a, a commitment to the original teachings in such a way that it very much has been lo- has, is sometimes lost in, in modern Buddhism as it has come to the West. Are you saying then that your experiences yes. with these... Uh, these highly evolved 
people yeah. in, the, in, in Thailand yeah. gave you sufficient confidence to uh, make a leap from your, say, prior agnosticism. Yeah. And that that kind of exposure is not available to us in the West because we're mainly reading books and getting information from um, relatively new um, teachers who have migrated here after taking teachings in the East. I think actually that's what I'm trying to say. Okay. We do. We do. We have very good teachers. Yes, we do. Of course. I, but I just wanted to say what, what is kind of difficult is that as, as it has come to the West and as we present, say, the Dhamma from a monastic perspective, it seems almost necessary for us to present it in a, a way which is acceptable to ag- the agnostic perspective. Right. So that's sometimes a challenge because we can easily, on the one hand, go too much to one extreme and basically present it as total agnosticism, which I think is unfair to what the original teachings are. Or we can go to the other extreme of basically saying, look, I'm a monk, this is the truth, and I want you all to believe this. <laughs> right? So that's the other extreme. Yeah. And, and I really do think there is a middle way, which is basically, like, I, I feel I'm kind of, perhaps we're over-presenting the side of Kama a little bit in this presentation. We were talking about this earlier. The one thing is that this is something that, that as a monastic, we can bring to the table, which is, which is hard to, not many teachers talk about it. No, they don't. And so it's like, okay, well, this is the one thing that actually, it's something that we can bring, which is, is unique to monastics. I mean, if, if we're just going to be saying the same thing, then we, why, why bother going? No, it's interesting. Yeah. So it's like, okay, well, then let's go ahead and do this and let's I'm present. Glad you did. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I, I want to stress, it's not like even myself, when I said, it, I don't really care. Actually, I mean that I've gone quite, a, quite seriously. Like, I really, if someone were to come up with me and, to me and talk about their psychic powers, even if I believe they're. Um, like enlightened, I'm really not interested in, in their, their abilities. Mm. Okay, although it is impressive, <laughs> you can say that and be, and believe it until you've actually met somebody who's walking through walls. And stuff. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe maybe that's a bit extreme, but like who's basically <laughs> saying something that kind of blows your mind. Yeah, and it's like, oh geez, holy cow! Oh yeah, something like that. <laughs> exactly. But even that. When, the, when push comes to shove, what I'm interested in is in the path. And that is, is what the Buddha taught. And that's what he gave. That is by far and away the most important part of his, his teaching is what is the path of practice that is relevant to you now. And Kama actually does perform form a kind of, as I was saying earlier, uh, a, perspe- a, a way of holding your reality. Mm. And if agnostics, agnostics can sometimes say, well, look, I don't want to hold my reality. I just want to open up to it. Well, actually, but I think the thing is, and I'm no, I don't want to put words in your mouth, so, yeah, sure. but often enough, agnosticism is simply just another way of holding reality. And it has its, it has its, its own biases that are inherent in that approach as well. Right. 